vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. For each week, my co-host will never deny dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Well, we didn't get any new backers uh, over the course of the last week. So my ass still hurts. Still broken. But I remain convinced that if we get more Patreon supporters, if my ass will be healed. Uh, so that's the first thing I'm salty about. Second of three things I'm salty about. We got the Eisner nominations today. And I have always known that they're bullshit because they never nominated me. The thing that really puts it over the top as just a bunch of assholes who may or may not have ever read a comic book. Tom King's steaming pile of awkward, bad terrible shitness that Riddler one bad day got nominated for fucking Eisner. And so I'm done. I am done pretending about Eisners that I care about them. I am done pretending that they are valuable. They're shit because of all of the books out there. That was one that got nominated. That book is it's, it's Eisner bait. It is this formalist bleak it's the equivalent of doing the movie where you play a real person who dies in the end tragically it is conceived for no other reason than this thing will win awards it was so bad though right it was by far the worst of those one bad day specials you nominate any other one and i'm like okay fine whatever but that one was so singularly terrible in its conception and execution and just everything. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm mad that I didn't get nominated, but I am just extra mad that this pile got nominated. I thought that the, the guild had come off the Tom King Lily, but apparently not. Apparently not. And the third thing, the third thing I am salty about is that the goddamn Enterprise is the fucking flagship of the fleet and not some piddly-ass little bitty ship that just happened to do some good shit. You cannot, you cannot have a little tiny-ass scout vessel as the Enterprise. I am sorry. Season 3 Picard was great. The last two episodes were perfect. You cannot fucking rename the Titan the Enterprise G. I'm sorry. You can't do it. Yeah, but Seven of Nine is captain of the Enterprise. Freaking rips. Yeah, that's really cool. She she still could have been captain of the Titan. You didn't have to fucking rename the thing. They they have been trying so hard, so hard to make legacy happen. It's not gonna. If it hasn't been announced by now, it's not gonna. Right? And I know that I'm sure they thought like having an Enterprise out there might have been cool, might have been a draw. But I'm just, oh, the final act of Picardness, of just putting a hat on a hat that it couldn't just be seven got to command a ship. It had to be, oh, it's, it's the Enterprise G now. Oh, 
So I'm glad that you got to see all of Picard, and I'm I'm glad that we got to those last two episodes that were really, really good. Oh, there is some glorious science fiction in there. The use of the transporters to do what it did, and I'm trying not to spoil anything for anyone who's still watching it, but the, the use of the transporters to pull off the glorious sci-fi nonsense was brilliant. It, ex- it explains all of that. I, like, I'm trying not to spoil anything because I just want to talk about all the little twists and Matt, turns. Matt, 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 Matt. It, it's okay, right? We we waited to not do spoilers just for you. Everybody who's going to watch it has seen it by now. Yeah, by the time and, this and, drops, and, it's going to be the beginning. And if you're still out there and if you haven't seen it, just, I don't know, fast forward like 20 minutes. Who knows how much we're going to talk about this? Yeah, we, we, we've got much to talk about tonight. Five minutes. The Changeling Borg Alliance, the tremendous makeup job they did to make the Borg Queen the creepiest fucking thing I've seen in a while. The the explanation as to how Jack Crusher's power worked, it's all just so beautifully done as playing on these science fiction tropes. Oh, yeah, yeah. We took uh, Sexy Borg Queen and make it uh, horrific. Yeah. The one thing that I will say that, and this was from episode eight, that kind of bugged me. It's like, okay, we're, you know, granted, yes, the Titan is on somewhat of a skeleton crew, but we know we're about to go into battle against the entirety of Starfleet. Why did they blow up the Shrike? Why didn't they just go on to the Shrike or split the crew and take the Shrike too? That thing was deadly. Why did you waste it by just blowing it up? I don't know if they intended to blow it up. I think maybe they intended to disable it and it just happened to explode. All right. I can give you, I, I can go with that. Oh, here's one question I have, and this has never been explained. Or maybe I'm the only one thinking about it. Where have quantum torpedoes gone? That's a good question. Because the Titan only has photon torpedoes. And I believe in the, the big... Starbase fight, like you only see photon torpedoes. Maybe it wasn't on a ship as you know, sort of small as the Titan, but you'd think something like the Enterprise G. Uh, you mean the F? F, yes, excuse me, the F. The, the Odyssey F. class Enterprise F. Yep, the F would have had them. Oh, oh, Shelby. Oh, it was so good to see you for those like thirty seconds. She can be alive in your heart still. It, I did not realize it until a few years ago that 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 she was Brian Dennehy's daughter. I might have read that on Wikipedia. I heard an interview with her after Dennehy passed about him and acting and all the her career, his career, all of that. And it's just like, oh, she's also a very prolific stage actress. So I, I had heard it on a, a, pod, a theater podcast. But. Yeah, it it had so many great little cameos and nods and all of them on the bridge of the D was just like my heart grew three sizes that day. Oh, oh, what was that? The end of episode was it the end of episode nine? Mm-hmm. So we yeah, we reviewed it at Comics XF, reviewed the whole series, and we reviewed seasons one and two as well which I was very lukewarm to salty about. But that episode eight or nine, 
it's the first time I actually just like fell in love with the show, right? So I watched it that morning and then I watched it again that night. And then I watched that last 10 minutes, like five or six times in a row as all the lights on the D came back on and everybody settles into their seats and Picard makes a little joke about the carpet. Like it was so perfect. So good. And while in ge- I, I absolutely saw your point you made the last time we talked about it, about Worf at times being a little off. I do like his cover. Like, Actually, the Enterprise E had better weapons. Like Worf, you know, that was in character. And, and Troy being the one to shut him up was delightful. Can't believe that they made it the E a fucking punchline. It was a fucking sexy ship. I love the E. The E was a great looking ship. Do you love it as much to make it your license plate, Matt? True. Got me beat there. I-7-O-I-E. True fact. I was not fast enough with my with my camera on my phone, but I actually passed in traffic the person with 1701E. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Bunch of nerds up here in Huntsville. What what else is there? The the only other bit that I didn't like from the last couple episodes, aside from the rechristening, was and I, I brought this up in the review, the D moving like a fighter. Uh like a fighter jet. Like it was a very fun scene. Like Brent's uh Brent Spiner had a great time with that. But it's one of the downfalls of getting away from the practical models and moving to CGI. Like there was a scarcity, right? When you had those real practical models that you had to move around and put into actual physical space. Just because you can do a thing on the computer doesn't mean that you should do a thing on the computer. We knew that Starfleet ships generally couldn't move like that. I mean, you haven't watched DS9, but one of the points of the Defiant, the ship that they had there for the, the Dominion War, was that it could move like that. It was designed to move like like a, a fighter, like something you would bring into combat, because Starfleet vessels aren't designed as combat ships in general. Exactly. That's why you have different classes of ships. You have escorts, you have cruisers, you have dreadnoughts. Like, it's just the logic of the universe that they have created. Yeah, I mean, I think if anyone, the data of it is somewhat of an excuse that only data could have gotten it to do that. But it is still a stretch of anything we've ever seen a Starfleet vessel able to do, or a vessel of that class and size. But it was fun. It absolutely was fun. Which is the really just kind of the point of that season. Rule of cool. But this is thus endeth the Star Trek portion of this podcast as we move into what you're here really here for, which is the Batman portion of the podcast. Because if you were here for the Star Trek, you'd be backing us on Patreon so you could hear us talk about Star Trek for hours. Tonight, it's time to talk about three stories about Batman's most loyal ally, Alfred Pennyworth. So I initially was going to start this off as we once did a bit at the beginning of an episode where we talked about the top 10 Bat Rogues. I was sorely tempted to start here talking about the top 10 bat allies but that way lies madness because there are way too many and it is such a top heavy list that i don't know if you could necessarily 
come up with a, a consensus on top 10. But you would have to limit it, and maybe this would shrink the list. You would have to limit it to non combat roles. Mm. So you would have to exclude all of the Robins, your Cassandra Canes, uh, your Stephanie Browns. Is Barbara a an either or? Is is or is or even as Oracle? Is she still towards the costumed end of the spectrum? Uh Oracle is a non combat support role. So yeah, she would she would be an ally. But in thinking about this one way or the other, I think Alfred is the most important bat ally. Yes. And uh, one might even call him the first ally. Yes. And it's interesting. Last week, maybe the week before, there was something on Twitter. Someone posted something and it, it kind of blew up about what is the best retcon in comics history. Because we all talk about all the terrible retcons. But what is the best retcon in comic history? And someone pretty early on in the thread absolutely called it. And it is Frank Miller making Alfred the Wayne's butler, not just someone who became Bruce Wayne's butler when he was already Batman and Robin was already there. Placing Alfred as someone who was there as the first ally, as this integral part of Bruce's life, has defined and improved that character a hundredfold. Absolutely. So that that is the question. Why, to you, is Alfred the most pivotal and important Batman ally, the most important character in the canon outside of Batman and maybe the Joker? He's emotional support. He is physical support. He can be combat support. He can also be a conscience. He can force Bruce to look after himself when he might not otherwise. He can point out to Bruce where he's gone too far, that he's he's pressed something too hard, whether that's himself, whether that's some issue, some problem. Alfred might be the one person, if there's anyone, that Batman would respect and listen to. And I think that's very important. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think he's also the only one who legitimately can take the piss out of him. Yeah. Other people can make, you know, a sideways comment. Dick can get away with it too. But when Alfred does it, it is the time of Bruce will listen. A sarcastic comment from Alfred will get him to actually maybe take half a step back. Versus I think if Dick does it, Bruce just pushes on harder. He is the character more than anyone else. And this actually might be countering, maybe not countering, but an explanation as to why some of the things that I felt have happened in the books lately actually make sense versus being just writers not wanting to deal with something. I think Alfred is the thing that kept Bruce Wayne alive. And I think the fact that we don't have Bruce Wayne plots anymore might have something to do with the fact that Alfred isn't there. That is some very good insight, I think. And I mean, I don't know if this is a case of when we eventually get 
the resurrection of Alfred, which they tease us with, but is going to happen eventually because no one ever really stays that dead. If that will be the thing that gets us Bruce Wayne's stories again, because without Alfred there to remind him regularly that you need to have that balance, no one else is going to do it. He won't listen to Dick. He might listen to Selena, but Selena has so much going on when it comes to her own relationship with him and that thought that she can't get too involved because in the long run, he needs to be Batman. That I don't think there's anyone else who really is going to tell him to be Bruce. Maybe Leslie Tompkins, but Leslie is a fairly minor part of Batman of the past decade. How long has... Alfred been dead at this point. Real world time or comic time? Real world time. Alfred died around Batman 80. We're at 135 now. Five-ish years? Four to five years? Somewhere in that range? That's that's where I was going to peg it. So at the very outside, we've got maybe another 10 years to go. I am honestly shocked that he didn't come back back around the time of the Batman to reestablish the, to make the status quo recognizable. Why would you do something like that? It's funny. DC tends to not lean as heavily into the movie thing as Marvel does. A change happens in a Marvel movie and they work it into the comics pretty quick. As long as the general shape of things is recognizable, DC doesn't make the changes as readily. And we, at this point, we have World's Finest where Alfred is alive. There are aspects, there are books where Alfred is still around. Well, you know, World's Finest is going to go for, what, maybe another 20 issues? I want to believe longer, but it's that book will last as long as Wade wants to stay on it. Because when Wade is done with it, that book, I don't know if they'll find anyone who wants to do that book that way. And I don't know if anyone else, even if they did have someone else who wanted to, I don't know if it would work as well. Mm, Very good point. But Wade is also the guy that teased us the hardest. So, yeah. Gave us one beautiful scene at the end there, though, when there's that little bit of Alfred and like, oh, but oh, goddamn Lazarus planet event, and you can't use that to bring back Alfred. All right, yeah, he'll be back. I keep telling myself he'll be back, but. Now we actually do have three actual stories to discuss uh, outside of a general sense of Alfred. The first story of the night is Captive Audience. This is Batman Gotham Adventures number 16. The writer is Scott Peterson. Pencils by Craig Rousseau. Inks by Terry Beattie. Colors by Lee Lawfridge. Letters by Tim Harkins. And edited by Darren Vincenzo and Joseph Illage. The cover date is September of 1999. Alfred has been kidnapped. With the whole Bat family engaged in other cases, it's up to Alfred to hold his own until they can get to him. For those of you out there who aren't as familiar, this Gotham Adventures is the tie-in comic to the new Batman Adventures, the second generation 
DCAU Batman series with the slightly altered designs. Each of these stories tonight will let us look at different facets of Alfred. This is one of the best stories to capture Alfred the man of action without pushing it to a sort of ridiculous degree that it can be by some writers. Jeff Johns. Yeah, exactly. That would be the big example. But here you see how competent Alfred can be when under fire, but he's not going out and following Bruce out into combat as if he were one of the costumed bat allies. And I don't think he ever should. Alfred's role in the field should be emergencies only. Yeah, Alfred enters combat when the manor is invaded. That yes. is when Alfred is in a combat role. And those are the best Alfred in combat moments, whether it's the event, what you eventually see, the flashback or the, the little kind of what lost scene of him confronting Bane in Nightfall, which you don't see in the actual book, but shows up in a secret files later when he takes out Hush in Heart of Hush, when he is stalking the manor, looking for Hush, even though he didn't know it was Hush, in Eternal. These are the moments when Alfred is at his best, when he's dealing, when the owl, the talons are invading during Court of Owls. Wayne Manor is Alfred's domain, and you do not fuck with that house, because if you do, you're fucking with Alfred Pennyworth. Yeah, because he's going to have to clean that shit, and he does not enjoy that. No, but he also knows how to get the blood out of anything. Oh, of course. So this is, as with so many of these adventures issues, this is just a really tight little one-off. Alfred's been kidnapped. You keep cutting between him dealing with his kidnappers and Nightwing, Robin, and Batgirl fighting their way through a mob that they have to take care of before they can go and save Alfred because Bruce has tasked them to get him. And it's clever and it's light, but it's like the best of the animated series, both the cartoon and the comic. It beautifully balances a tone where it's not deadly serious, but it's also not purely comedic. It's not a quote-unquote kids comic. It is an all-ages comic. Though I thought, not to disagree, but I thought this went a little too far into the realm of uh, silliness. Especially where we make the joke of, oh, Alfred's been been kidnapped 27 times and Alfred can hypnotize people. That's pushing it a little a little too far. The hypnotism was that particular bit, yes, was a bit much. I, I will that jumped out at me. The 27 times thing, I can see where you're coming from there. That's a laugh line. I, I kind of accept that as part as the cost of a heightened reality. I think if this were the real world, of course not. If this were a more serious, purely serious Batman comic set in the you know Earth Prime, no, you wouldn't pull that joke. But the animated series exists in just 
slightly heightened reality where you can get away with that as a laugh line. The hypnotism thing, yeah, that was uh, that was one was a bit much. I much preferred how he took out the ringleader of the kidnappers. Gets him just close enough, and yeah, he's worked his way out of the cuffs. And yeah, he cuffed the guy right to his own, to the chair. And then hit him over the head. Look, who's to say when he got a baseball bat, you know? Yeah, I, I kind of do figure we should have probably seen the, could have been Chekhov's baseball bat at one point or another in there. But it worked, and I do... The tracker thing makes perfect sense. That's like, yeah, of course, Alfred has a tracker on him at all times. I would not be surprised. Let's be honest. Every costume that any member of the Bat family gets from Bruce, there's a tracker somewhere in that costume. Oh, of course. Every, or whatever they're kidnapped. Yeah, exactly. Every vehicle has multiple redundant trackers in it. Batman is always prepared. Also, and this is one you wouldn't have picked up on because it's a very particular inside joke. But when Alfred finally gets the guy and reveals Bruce Wayne's secret that he cries at the end of every episode of Crocky Adventures, Crocky is a recurring theme in 90s Batman comics. It's Gotham's answer to Barney the Dinosaur. It pops up (laughs) repeatedly throughout 90s Batman. It's mostly actually in canon stuff, but Peterson was one of Denny O'Neill's assistant editors. So he clearly just kind of brought that line in. But yeah, so you just picture Bruce Wayne crying at the end of every episode of Barney the Dinosaur. And it makes the line even funnier when you get the little bit of the little nod there. Cute, cute. Alfred is in a dangerous situation here and he plays the situation really well because he's not the only hostage and he finds a way to protect the other hostages. And I don't 100% know how you could have taken out the other two guys not using the hypnotism thing. I think possibly him finding a way to get them to fight each other might have been a little more logical. But one way or the other, he never loses his cool. Yeah, yeah, that would have been fun. Like, talking about the ransom money and how they'd have to split it. And, you know, if there are fewer of you, your share would be larger. Or the fact that one of them was complaining about being hungry. And then one puts out, well, yeah, you forgot to get the food. And Alfred getting them to argue more about that. Or he starts talking about how he, you know, knows how to make food. And getting them to start arguing over which one of them would go out to get the ingredients. And there were any number of ways you could have played that to get them into a fight. Hypnotism, probably the worst way you could have played it. Yeah, that's up there with the same kind of thing with overpowering Batman, too. Like with Bruce suddenly has such hyper preparedness that is playing into the same trope, only making it Alfred doing it. How absolutely chill he is when Dick, Tim, and Barbara shows up. Just how dry. Yes, they simply fell asleep from boredom. He had handcuffed himself to a chair and seems to have knocked himself out. As one does. Yeah. It's, It's just beautifully understated, which is exactly how Alfred would play this. And I mean, and let's also be fair, these kidnappers were not exactly the cream of the crop. I love Alfred addresses them towards the end as 
quote, stupendously incompetent, unquote, which is is pretty accurate. Let's be fair. So let me ask you a question. Are you a fan of incorporating the three-act structure into these books? Because this one obviously does not have it. No, that was only for the first volume, for the original Batman Adventures. They moved away with that from that with these other volumes. I have a soft spot for it because I love that first volume is my sort of ultimate comfort food comic. It is the the comic that I read so many times when I was younger, when I would be, you know, have a rough day. It was like, let me go back and reread insert one of those issues here but i think for some writers that might be hamstringing even a word i don't know but you know it limiting having to break it down into the three acts and make sure you hit the beats exactly that way might not work for every writer and it was clear that kelly puckett who wrote that first volume was thinking about it in a very specific way but it was fun to do because you got the chapter titles. It's something that I kind of wish they could play with a little more every now and then. But what about you? I mean, was the lack of the three-act structure now that you've gotten used to seeing it in the original adventures, were you expecting it? And then it's like, it felt off not seeing it? Yeah, a little, it did feel a little off because it's, it's a bit cutesy having it. And it really maybe the extra humor would not have seemed so out of place if I was in a more cutesy mindset. I can see that. The end of the issue, that last, the last page, page and a half, when it's just Alfred and Bruce, I mean, that's the core of the character. That's kind of the core of what we'll be discussing tonight in the long run. Bruce asking Alfred if he minded that he didn't come after him this time and he sent the kids and Alfred just saying that, you know, I, I took it as the highest compliment to both them and myself. And I feel they would feel the same way is a beautiful sentiment and shows how well Alfred knows Bruce and knows that if Bruce felt like Alfred was actually in danger, nothing in the world would stop him. Again, though, that undercuts the the drama of the issue. That line at the end, or the fact that Bruce isn't going in general, undercuts the the drama of the issue. Well, well, the point you just made that if Alfred was really in danger, Bruce would go. The fact that he sent Nightwing, Robin, Batgirl says, okay, he's not really in danger, and that to me that undercut a bit of the seriousness. I can see where you're coming from. I think maybe if you had had established that Bruce was dealing with a Joker or Two-Face, like something major, it could have made the stakes feel a little higher. But it also is, and this is extrapolating something here from the animated series universe into the, the actual DCU, but this is, in the long run, what costs Alfred his life. Bruce is so confident in Alfred and Alfred's ability to take care of himself that he placed him and Damien in a scenario where they weren't ready for that. But Bruce's own confidence is at least partially responsible for Alfred's death. 
And one wonders, we've never really had the, the issue or the story where Bruce reckons with Alfred's death. Nope. Damien has spent a lot of time thinking about it and talking oh, about it and processing yeah. his, his feelings. The Robin ongoing by Joshua Williamson, Damien. I mean, Damien was talking to an Alfred in his head bits and pieces over most of those issues because he was reckoning with his own guilt. Dick has had to reckon with it because of the inheritance he received from Alfred. And this this goes back to what I especially didn't like and how Alfred was killed and what that really meant. Alfred was killed in that Tom King run in furtherance of the larger Bat-Cat story. In that issue, you have this graphic, and I hated it from the, the moment I saw it, the moment I read that issue. You have this graphic splash page of Alfred's neck being snapped. And that's a big, big choice there. If you're going to do that, that needs to be the centerpiece of the issue. But it wasn't. Five pages later, you get a splash of Batcat. Oh, we're heading back to Gotham. Just a total misread of where the priorities should have been in that issue and where Alfred should have come, you know, in that story. And I think it's because of that original sin, we haven't had any follow up from Bruce on his feelings and how he processes it and what it still means to him. Like we get a little bit of that here and here and there, but Alfred's death should be a thing that continues to linger. Just like Jason Todd's death was a thing that continued to linger. I don't think people are so upset. And, you know, we saw this on Twitter today with, uh, you know, the, the death of Miss Marvel. I don't think people are so upset of, these characters dying off it's that the the death's not meaning anything we're not going to go into the ms marvel thing because it is one of the few times where i have sat back i'm a really strong believer in never judge a comic book story until you read the story we've seen so many bad concepts that's in execution actually work the secret empire did not work oh yeah but Here's the thing. There are ideas that are so inherently flawed that you can't pull back from them. Nazi Captain America is an idea so inherently flawed that the story can't work. Killing your one major Muslim hero in a book headlined by a cis white guy to seemingly further the plot line in that book is an inherently flawed idea. Yeah. No matter how heroic you make her death, she's not dying in a Ms. Marvel story. She's dying in a Spider-Man story. And if she is not back by the debut of the Marvels in November, I will, I don't know what, but there's no way she is not back in some way, shape, or form when the movie debuts. You will, you will eat a copy of Killing Joke. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but there are just wrong-headed ideas. The death of Alfred is in itself not a wrong-headed idea. You could build a really good story around the death of Alfred. But the way it was handled didn't work 
No, absolutely not. It's like Tom King found out he had permission to do it. And he's like, okay, sure. I'll throw it. I will throw it in alongside this other story that I'm much more interested with. But wrapping up this issue, but yeah, the end is just this moment between Bruce and Alfred. And I mean, you get the Alfred's comment about these guys being stupendously incompetent. You see, even Bruce cracks a smile at that one. And that's the other thing. Alfred is one of the very few people in the world who can get Bruce to smile. Only occasionally at Alfred's expense. Speaking of the animated series, the episode, The Last Laugh, where Joker is... Exactly. That's That's exactly what I'm thinking. Don't worry, Alfred. I'll just take it out of your salary over the course of the next 80 years or so. Oh, bother. But I think we've we've covered the the elements of this story. Oh, that means it's time for Batman Gotham Adventures number 16 on the big board. We are at 261 stories on the big board. On the march to 300. We are. Number one is still the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at number 50 is Only Takes a Night. Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle go out on a date. And coming into the sexy 69, it's Batman Gotham Knights number 32-24-7. At 100 is the Doomsday Book, where Batman meets Sherlock Holmes. At 150 is the Mud Pack, the team-up of all them, their clay faces. So many clay faces. So many. At 200 is Shaman, the first five issues of Legends of the Dark Knight. And down at 261, it's White Knight. Still terrible. Okay, where are we looking at here? The only other issue of Gotham Adventures that we have is down at 206, Last Chance, the, the 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 story that gives us the entire Dead Man arc in one issue. This, this is, is better than that. Oh, yeah. This is much more of a Batman story. This tells a fun Alfred story. I'd say this is better than Batman Adventures 9 at 198, Little Red Book, which didn't have much to it. Yes. So moving up, our next Batman Adventures is Batgirl Day One, the first time Harley ever pops up in a Batman comic. Uh, I think we got to go below. Hmm, All right. Well, here, 146. Who's scared? Uh, Scooby-Doo team up number two. That is the Ace the Bat Hound and Scooby team up. Scarecrow is freaking out the mystery analyst of Gotham issue. I, I might put this above that. We're close, though. Yeah. We're yeah, dialing so, in. Right, because that, that's 148, and Batgirl Day 1 is 135, so we're in a, a, a limited range right now. 146, excuse me, 146 and 135. 142, Catwoman when in Rome. Very pretty, completely unnecessary. Yes. I put this just above that. Yeah. Yeah. Above that is Remarkable Ruse of the Riddler, which does have that crazy moment where the Riddler makes himself a weeble that wobbles, but he won't fall down. <laughs> that alone is kind of worth its own little level of insanity. So I think maybe make this the new 142. 
New 142. The next story of the night is Ablation. This is Batman Gotham Knights number seven. The writer is Devin Grayson with pencils by Paul Ryan, inks by John Floyd, colors by Gene Segarra, letters by Bill Oakley, and edited by Denny O'Neill. The cover date is September of 2000. As Batman tries to stop an arson for hire, Alfred and Leslie Tompkins reflect on their lives together and their history with both Bruce and Batman. So, hey, we're back in Devin Grayson country. Only a few issues after the last time we talked about our, a Devin Grayson comic. Uh, we're back in Gotham Knights country. This is much earlier in the run. This is still when we have the narrative trope of the first year with these files on Batman's supporting cast's allies as the narration of the, the series, which is somewhat heavy-handed, and I was not in love with the narration in this book. Uh, no, not at all. Uh, and I was just going to ask you, uh, how does that get paid off? Like, who is this narrator? It's Bruce. This is his personal files on his allies. So he's talking about himself in the third person. Yeah. At least if memory serves, because the major villain of the first year or so is Hugo Strange. And I think if, and again, it's been a long time since I read these. But I think you're sort of led to believe that it's strange. And then the swerve is, oh, no, this is actually Bruce having been writing in the third person sort of dissociated. But I might be. Yeah, there. Ah, that was that these are written. These are Bruce Wayne's thoughts, not Batman's thoughts. Why the fuck is Bruce Wayne going to have any thoughts? Like Bruce Wayne's whole deal is no thoughts. As, as I get back to the end, I, was like, I looked at him and I was like, yeah. Uh, later in the Batcave, Nightwing recites the oath he once learned from his mentor. And these words snap Bruce out of a post-hypnotic state. He inf had inflicted that on himself to make it believable that he and Batman are not the same person. Bruce explains that the computer files about his associates are written from his own perspective not from Batman's. Ugh. I genuinely never like it. The concept that Bruce is that dissociated no. from Batman. Bad. Maybe the idea that he would have a post-hypnotic suggestion to completely make him forget he's Batman, to allow to pass lie detectors or truth drugs or something like that, I can sort of get with that, but I don't think he does this as an exercise. And I kind of prefer the, the Batman of Zurinar if you want to have a second personality popping around in that noggin. Uh, even ugh. removing that I don't like the general idea of the narration, it's all so... I don't even want to say purple, because they're not purple. They're just overwritten. Yeah, this story treads a lot of the same ground as we'll see in our final story but just does so in a much more clompy manner. It's like clomp, 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 talk, talk, talk. We also have Alfred and Leslie getting a little too familiar. I think less is much more with them. Like it should, it should be like a will they, won't they sort of relationship rather than just apparently stealing passionate embraces from time to time. 
I think you you're allowed to have that happen once. I think if it happened the one time at the beginning when they think that they have this moment and then, oh, here comes Bruce in the costume and Leslie learns that he's Batman and that's it. Works. But after that, they seem to know that they can never be together because they will always be obligated to Bruce. But they still keep trying it. And it's like, they're both smarter than that. Like, why would you torture yourselves in this kind of way? Right. I like the general idea. I like the idea of a relationship building between these two people who know their obligation, their life is so tied to Bruce. No one else would understand that. Maybe you had a different read on this than I did. But one moment that I thought was a little sour... Leslie laughing at Alfred uh, when he says he's resigned. Yeah. I mean, I guess she really didn't. She thought he was kidding. But if she knows him, she has to know his sense of humor. That is something he would never make a joke about. Well, you see her, her facial reactions. It is first a absolute shock seriousness. And then the next panel is a laugh. I think she should maybe smile. She should know, look, you can't quit him any more than I can quit, you know, the clinic. We are who we are at this point in our lives. There is no getting around that. But the fact that she would just like throw her head back and laugh, and and maybe it's not a full on laugh, but that's what the art is giving you here. I think a wry chuckle is more appropriate. Oh, oh, Alfred, that kind of shake her head sort of thing versus a a full on Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. Ha ha. Batman just knocked out Guy Gardner. But yeah, that's that's the feeling we get here, because the bottom of one page, she's throwing her head back. And on the other page, it's like she's wiping a a tear from her eye. Like she was laughing so hard she cried. Yeah. Ugh. Don't like that. Again, this is one that I think works much better in concept than it does in practice. And the case here is an odd choice. Because with our next story, which as you said, it treads a lot of the same beats, what Bruce is dealing with is something that has at least some degree of parallel to to the emotional plot. Here, Bruce is trying to stop some guy from burning down his own nightclub. Okay, it's a Tuesday. There's nothing exceptional. There's nothing about, I mean, I guess any story in the long run is about Bruce and his obligation to Gotham. That is sort of the core of everything Batman does. So him going out injured. But you could have done that with any story. I don't know why you wouldn't have tried to put something together that was more about the title, about ablation. It seems such small potatoes compared to literally the most important moments in Batman's life and in Alfred's life. There is nothing more important than the death of the Waynes Uh, And 
you know the the moment from Nightfall when Alfred quits. Those are some of the the most critical moments, and then they're paired up against, as you said, a Tuesday in Gotham, a light Tuesday in Gotham, since it's not Joker trying to burn down all of the clubs in Gotham. Right, and I mean, look at the other ones. You got the moment where Leslie learns that he is Batman. the The last one is Christmas Day on the year of No Man's Land. That final one is with Huntress in the hospital and Nightwing looking over her. That means that is the very end. Because that's, if Nightfall is 48 issues, if you're taking four issues a month for 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 a year, that is in between parts 47 and 48, which is seven months before this. That is a huge moment in Gotham history right there. And is again, Devin Grayson and her weird thing about Nightwing and Dick. But again, that's for another time when we talk about some of that stuff. I did like some of the visual storytelling with Alfred as he learns of the death of the Waynes. Yes. I don't like the idea that he learns of it secondhand, which that's a weird choice. But the fact he is so shocked and horrified that the umbrella just flies out of his hands. Mm-hmm. And then he stands there in the pouring rain for a moment and then, oh, and then goes to collect it. And he only goes to collect it so he can hold it over Bruce's head as Bruce heads into the mansion. That moment is from here on out, my life is for him. Exactly. That is a beautifully done moment. Paul Ryan is known mostly for his Marvel work. And what DC he did, I think, is mostly Superman and maybe Flash. And but... we can't forget that he was Speaker of the House. Yeah. I like this Paul Ryan. <laughs> uh, much more. You uh, you don't have to tell me much or if anything about this guy, but he's he's <laughs> got to be better. But he does a really good job in this issue with a lot of the, the, the storytelling. He was a really solid utility player when it comes to his art. Yeah, and Grayson is ultimately responsible, going back to that sour moment with Leslie and Alfred, but Ryan tells it very well, right? Like, we know exactly what Leslie is thinking thanks to uh, his work. Yeah, no, he he hits all of those beats, and the, the the end when Bruce comes back to the mansion and Alfred and Leslie are waiting to take care of him, the looks on their faces you know, when it's basically, it's like nonsense. No one here is unhappy with their choices. They look at peace with the choices they've made and with who they are in this particular moment. Although, again, the the one thing in this, again, might be more from the script. So when Batman is dealing with the arsonists outside the club, he's grabbed the club owner, Villain. What a name. Boy, there's nominative determinism if I ever saw it. He's got I will say, though, Rhythm Method, great name for a club. I'd buy that shirt. Batman's got him. Do his goons drive up and try to shoot Batman while Batman is holding him? And Batman has to save him from his own 
guys shooting him? Or do you think he hired these guys blind so they don't realize that he hired them to burn down his own club and thus they had no reason to not shoot at him? Because you'd think they wouldn't want to shoot their meal ticket. I'm going to be real honest. All of the club arson stuff is just messy. And I was trying to get to the actual good stuff in the issue. Yeah. So who knows what the hell happened, really? Yeah, that, that stuff just doesn't matter. You're not, you don't care. You want to read about Alfred and Leslie. That's what draws you in this issue. And we saw that, to be honest, in the Gotham Adventures. But with that, it was just, just silly action and quick one-off little almost jokes of, oh, we got to fight another room of bad guys. Oh. And then we get back to the stuff that we're interested in. Right. It's like, oh, here this comes stuff the just with... drags. Mm-hmm. Here comes the guy with the flamethrower. Here comes the guy with the, the bandolier and the multiple machine guns. And Ryan does a perfectly serviceable job with the action. But Craig Rousseau does a much better job with it in the Gotham Adventure stuff. Rousseau, which didn't talk about the art again. Rousseau has a much more dynamic style it works really well with that animated series universe it's very engaging ryan's stuff is much better with the character interaction and so you want to spend your time with alfred and leslie and bruce doing alfred leslie bruce stuff and not so much with the action piece the opening action sequence of bruce chasing the the one bouncer heavy through the streets of Gotham and down into the sewers looks really nice. That is solid, but it's before you get into the story and the stuff, you know the stuff you're going to get is what you want to read. So it shows that Ryan can absolutely handle that. But when it's juxtaposing lukewarm action with much more interesting character beats, you, you don't care. Nope. And I can't believe that this narration is literally like, each issue is Bruce's file. A Bruce who has dissociated. The first 11 issues of the series. That's that's really something. Fun fact that we will get to someday. Issue 12 is actually a file story because the original issue, the original script and story, which was fully written, written, penciled, and lettered, DC decided not to publish. Oh, and it was only released finally oh, 2019, 2020 in a trade as a bonus feature in the back of a trade. Well, that's interesting. It was a Zaz one off during a, a month where each issue of the bat titles that month was focused on a villain and was called this issue Batman Dies. And it, it each one has some feature of one of the villains thinking about how they would kill Batman. And that issue was just a little too creepy. And once they read it, they're like, yeah, let's just use this file Oracle story and put this one aside. And it was eventually released in the back of an anthology of Zaz stories that came out around the time of Birds of Prey, the movie, when, which Zaz was in. 
That reminds me of that uh, brief little thing they did on um, DC Infinite that was, oh, here are all the darlings we've killed over the years. Mm-hmm. That one would have fit very well in that series. But yeah, you, if you get the Batman Arkham Zaz trade, that's the, the last story in it. I bought the whole damn trade to get that issue. Forbidden knowledge. Exactly. Was it any good? It wasn't bad. <laughs> was it worth buying a whole fucking trade? Uh, no, man. <laughs> uh, it's, all, it's only money, Matt. Exactly. And hey, I think there were some other fun stories in that trade that I got. Now I can read physically without having to dig out the individual issues because I own everything else in that trade. But I think that pretty much does it on this one. Oh, that means it's time to a Batman Gotham Knights number seven on the big board. So it's not as high as Gotham Adventures 16. No, it's too, it's too weird. It's too clumpy. I don't think think we're in the top 200. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't think it goes below number 200, which is Leaves of Grass, which is three issues of weird, clumpy, let's talk about marijuana policy in all sorts of bits of dialogue that reads like a pamphlet. But I don't know how much higher it goes above 200. Yeah, I don't think I could put it above Faces or Joker's Comedy of Errors at 179. No. It might go shortly below that, because I can see putting it above Batman Harley Quinn at 184. Because this this does have a couple of really nice character beats. It does. And Harley Quinn does not have those. Uh, refresh me on Shadowbox at 183. King Snake. That's King Snake comes to Gotham. The Dixon Lyle three-parter that follows up on the Robin miniseries they did. Clearly, remarkably unrememorable. unmemorable. Yes. Uh, Young Justice, 182. That is those six Peter David issues we did with Josh. The the mighty endowed Peter David doing a lot of sophomoric humor, mm. but also getting some good character moments for some of those characters and decent Todd Nock art throughout. I think it's somewhere... 180 to 184, but I don't know where. Yeah. I'm I'm saying 182. All right. A little bit right above Young Justice. Because I think Spider-Man and Batman has a decent idea at its core, but as we said when we talked to Tony about that episode uh, that that issue, it just doesn't spend enough time with it doesn't have enough time to tell the story it wants to tell this one has a similar issue in that it should have spent more time telling the story that mattered and less time on the the batman case of the week Uh, case of the very week (laughs) our final story of the night is father's day this is batman volume three annual number three the writer is Tom Taylor, with art and colors by Otto Schmidt. Letters by Troy Pateri, and edited by Jamie S. Rich and Dave Wilgos. The cover date is February of 2019. 
Alfred goes about his normal business around Wayne Manor and thinks his normal thoughts as Batman tries to save Gotham from a broken man on a mission. Spend a night seeing what every night is like for Alfred Pennyworth. So this is the annual after one of our top 10 stories. This is annual volume three, annual three. So this is the annual after some of these days. So we're in the heart of the King run, but this isn't a King story. This is a Tom Taylor joint and is generally what Tom Taylor doing, what Tom Taylor does best, which is telling a small character based story. Tom Taylor's stuff works best. Even the biggest gonzoist stuff in Deceased or in Injustice is very rooted in character. Tom Taylor is at his worst when he is writing social commentary because he beats you over the head with the social commentary. And there's only a little bit of that in here. What's the story where he's tried to do that? Because I all of the Tom Taylor that I have read, I have enjoyed. And that's really just been Injustice. And a little um, bit of deceased. His Superman Son of Kal-El, some bits in Nightwing, X-Men Red, are all him doing social commentary. If you get the chance, if you read the first read a five pages of issue two of Superman Son of Kal-El, it's a school shooting and it is so heavy-handed. Yeesh. Yeah, it's Something that needs to be handled delicately is handled so, so remarkably heavily. And I'm going to just say right now, for those of you out there listening, as I'm about to discuss these pages on Son of Kal-El, a, a, a warning if school shootings as a concept are really triggering for you, just jump forward about two minutes. So yeah, John Kent arrives at school on his first day and he, he he's there and kid walks up with bright green hair and what is clearly an AR, uh, an AR-17, big old automatic weapon. And somebody says, you know, Kyle, what the hell are you doing? Where did you get that? His response is, shut up. It's too soon to politicize this. And he opens fire what yeah i, I don't was... i don't believe you the the words that are coming in your mouth he says it's too soon to politicize this and then he starts shooting yeah oh that's dumb taylor just hits noses on the head like some of the stuff in nightwing is similarly just very on the nose very sloppy and just like, look at the point I'm trying to make sort of thing. I know writers who use subtext and they're cowards. Yes. Yes. That is exactly how Tom Taylor feels when Tom Taylor is doing political discourse. Yikes. And so, I mean, you get a little bit of that here with our villain, the drone. I mean, this guy is a fairly on the nose sort of, oh, okay. So. 
I was a drone operator. I found out that I killed innocents. So now I'm going to turn that around and I am going to make those who made me a murderer feel the fear that they inflicted on others. Ah, my costume will not have a face because I am faceless. Right. At least here you get a weird parallel to Batman. This is someone who feels guilt, who feels responsibility, and who is now attempting to bring about change through fear. It's not a great parallel, but at least it makes the case somewhat jive with what's going on in Bruce's own life. And if nothing else, there are stakes to this. Yes, very much so. The previous one, it's like, yes, he's going to burn out the club with on a full club night. But he's hired petty arson goons to do it. Batman can take guys like this out in his sleep underwater with the lights out. There is no no stakes here because it is an easy thing for Batman to do. It is just another Tuesday. This guy has three drones with Hellfire missiles. He is a threat to Gotham. Seems like a real bad idea. Yeah. But the case here, again, doesn't matter because it's there to forward the narrative. It's here to forward Alfred's story. And again, we're now post-Flashpoint, post-Rebirth. So continuity is, is changing again. So here, Alfred does get the call. And that that repeated motif throughout the story of the call to Alfred is well done. That there's that call, and then why do you jump every time he calls? Because every one of those calls mean I'm not getting the call I never want to get. Or when Bruce calls when he's wounded. Again, it's the call over and over, and that in the end... When Bruce wants to let Alfred rest, he takes away his phone, his communicator, so he can't receive the call. That is placed throughout the story. And it just ends in such a perfect place. Yes. This one works really sort of well in conversation with the previous one, because you also get a bunch of Leslie Tompkins here. But again, we're in post-Flashpoint, where Leslie has been sort of decentralized from the mythos. And in this issue, at least de-aged. Very much so. Leslie is considerably younger in post-Flashpoint. She is seems to be Bruce's age, not a contemporary of his father's. I just, I like a lot of what is done here. This one also has Alfred at his, you know, sort of driest at great moments when, you know, giving Bruce uh, a thermos of soup and insisting he take it with him in the bat plane that he's will be able to fight evil one handed briefly. Because he has. Tell any of your villains, sir. Because Bruce has the flu and he's fighting his way through the flu. And as we find out by the end, Alfred has the flu too and hasn't even been letting on, which is so, so stiff upper lip that Alfred just knows that Bruce says he's coming in. So Alfred 
build a new utility belt so Bruce can swap out the belt so he has a fully stocked utility belt without even asking. That Alfred just knows that Alfred, you know, tidying up the manor, and that Alfred at 3 a.m. is in full butler regalia. You know, he's not going down in, you know, his pajamas or even in, like, casual clothes. Nope. He is dressed in his uniform at that moment because that is what Alfred does. Uh, That's what a gentleman's gentleman would do. He has so many good moments in this issue where he's fighting these would-be Batman muggers, right? Yeah. He, He doesn't dispatch them immediately. He takes his licks. But the thing he says, like, stop, or the next time you get beaten will come from, quote, uh, a man who's far more punishing and far more proficient at it than I am. Exquisite. Yes, that is a great moment. And his initial ire at them trying to mug Batman calls them ingrates. Talks about how, how many times has he saved this city? And you're mugging him in an alley, you ingrates. I have put up with so much shit, and you're going to do this. You fuckers. The one little bit that I do admit being like, oh, that that's it. not, it's not even a sour note. It's just an obviously like, oh, right. Tom Taylor doesn't write Batman comics regularly enough to know the proper cadence. When Bruce is talking to Alfred over the comms, out in public, he calls him Alfred, not Penny One. Which no I noticed... names only. Yeah, exactly. Which I noticed just once when the drone uses one of these drones to blow up what looks like an abandoned building. But wait, Bruce, there's one heat signature of, of a victim. Bruce drops down, he's leaning over the body, and he says, he tells Alfred, call an ambulance. He says it over the body of the guy who, of course, turns out to be the drone. Like, you know, he it's code names only. You don't say someone's real name in front of a civilian. It's not good OPSEC. If it had been in the Batmobile or the Batwing, it wouldn't have bothered me as much. But he was in front of a, who someone he assumed was a civilian. And he calls him Alfred. It's like, oh, that's not right. This is why you need good editors, Matt. Good editors pick you up. The whole scene towards the end also where Alfred brings Bruce. So Bruce defeats the drone, but the drone stabs him real good in the abdomen and he's bleeding out. And Alfred you know, gives him a transfusion in the, the Batmobile because there's a med bay in there. And he's having the Batmobile auto drive to the Tompkins Clinic. And he's there with Leslie and Leslie, you know, says something about this being a thankless job. And Alfred's like that. No, I am thanked every time I walk through Gotham and see families and they're happy. That is all the thanks I need is a beautiful moment and shows just how what out what this means to Alfred. And also he points out there that it's the pot calling the kettle black because, you know, she's as dedicated to her clinic as he is to Bruce. So it's Alfred's retort there that had me curious because he doesn't call it a clinic. He calls it very specifically a free health shelter. And I wondered if that was a UK thing or not. Let me try Australia. Or Australian because Taylor is very much Australian. No. Wait. 
I don't know what it is, but it's very weird. Should have just been a clinic, not a health shelter. Yeah, I've never heard that phrase elsewhere. But hey, if you have, let us know. Yes, please. Uh, but, you know, Alfred would be entitled to the non-standard English. Thank God Chip Zdarsky hasn't deployed it upon us in Batman. <laughs> but then we get Alfred then having received a concussion during his fight with these ruffians. Bruce comes two hours later and Alfred is now the one resting. And Leslie reams Bruce out for Alfred being beat up and sick. And Bruce won't rest and Alfred won't rest. And especially you should let him do it now because do you even know what tomorrow is? And Bruce, you know, Alfred can look after himself and Leslie just gives it to him, which is well within Leslie Tompkins' character, but the much younger Leslie doing it really is weird. I do not like the redesign on Leslie Tompkins in the same way I did not like it when they did the same thing to Amanda Waller in the New 52 as well. Suddenly you couldn't be a woman of a certain age in DC Comics during the New 52. wonder whose fault that is. Uh. But the final sequence is Bruce in them having moved Alfred back to the manor and saying that he's going to stay in today, that he's going to have Duke and Cassandra go out and make the rounds, make the patrol. Bruce needs his rest. He doesn't necessarily say, but then he finally does say to Alfred that he doesn't want Alfred to worry today. And he just leaves him and Alfred asks him why. And he just, tells him to rest and then it pulls out and you get a photo of young Bruce with Alfred and the story title which is Father's Day which is a beautiful moment and it does so much attest to the fact that Alfred is Bruce's father in every way that counts exactly this story gets the heart the core of that relationship so well and is a really well done story about just what Alfred means to Bruce, what Bruce means to Alfred, and how they they interact, how they are together. And it's really well drawn. Otto Schmidt does a great job in this issue. I'm a, I really like Schmidt. I mean, his, he did a great run on Green Arrow in Rebirth and did uh, DC versus Vampires. And here really captures Alfred. He does a really again really strong facial expressions really good character work between bruce and alfred and bruce and leslie and alfred and leslie and i don't blame him for the leslie Tompkins design because that wasn't him yeah still bad yeah not his fault though nope uh i would just say uh in summary that this really is a a, a lovely beautiful story and is every bit as core to the characters as some of the highest ranked stories that we've read. And I think we're going to see just how high it goes. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. And with that, it's time for Batman annual number three on the big board. So that is a good question. Where are we looking? All right. Uh, so at a starting point, we'll say top 50. Yes. Just to, just to say. Absolutely agree. Where do we stand here in relation to There Is No Hope in Crime Alley, the first Leslie Tompkins at 42? 
this is not as much of a Leslie story as it is an Alfred story. 42 is more essential to Leslie, at least. I will give you what I have as a definite ceiling. Okay. Definite ceiling for me is 32, the nobody. I think the nobody is so much, so key in under, to understand Batman as a character. That that is the story that sort of establishes that version of Batman that I love. The Batman who is there to protect the innocent. And it, it's Grant and Brayfogle. It's beautiful art. It's a really strong story. I think it says something so fundamental about Batman as a character. As much as I like this, I don't think it can quite beat that for me. And I guess if we're comparing it to annual number two, all the way up there at number seven, we have a very strong emotional core on that last page. Yes. And it doesn't quite get to that point until that very last page. I think annual number two maintains that emotional intensity throughout. Yes. Which is why I think the nobody, while it doesn't have that emotional core in every page, it's rising and falling action and has a better action plot to it than this one. Because there you have the whole thing with the guy who has now Batman's identity and Joker's goons coming to get him. And it it's less heavy-handed in how it handles the story. But you get that narration, that bits of narration throughout of the guy asking Batman why he does what he does. I think it maintains the emotion better than this, which is why I don't think it can beat the nobody. And these are all very good stories that we have up here oh yeah uh, yeah we got Haikatia at 28 golem of gotham at 40 so this is this is not anything to sneeze at no no i mean it's smack in the middle there you know right at 36 you've got tower of babel and that's central modern batman 66 lost episode at 33 is just such an all-star creative team it is and it's beautifully done it's fun. It is a really enjoyable comic. Sleigh Ride at 35 is a great Joker story, a great Tim Drake story. That one gets a little bit of a boost from my love of Tim Drake, but it's also a really strong one-off. We love a really strong one-off. That we do. That's um, why we're looking in this area for this book, because this is, again, a really strong one-off. I would definitely put it above No Man's Land at 38. Yes. Simply because it's tight. Yeah. Well, relatively tight. You know, this is an annual at, uh, what is it, 50 some odd pages? Yeah, at least 48, if not 52, 56. But not to go back to last week and talk of minefields, but trying to trying to put this between Lost Episode, Holiday Special... Sleigh Ride, Tower Babel, Blink. Ooh, that's rough. That, yeah, exactly. Okay, if we're talking emotional core stuff, I don't think it can, it, it doesn't quite beat Holiday Special for me that has that absolutely stunning moment with Mr. Freeze at Nora's grave. Yeah. But I could see dropping it in between there and Sleigh Ride. Which is not an emotional story. It's a clever story. It's a well-written little tight thriller. 
and I'm a sucker for, you know, an emotional story. So I think, I think the new 35. Not bad. Not at all. Hey, look, that does it for tonight. Next week, Josh wheels back to talk about one of the last major bat rogues. We haven't featured in an episode yet. The mad hatter. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. June, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go Utes. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bobby Tubox. Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sreggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at Comics XF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>